Space Ghost here, kids, and you are listening to episode number six. Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins, read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchutchins.net. Greetings, kitty gatos. I am the Kimi. You can listen to my podcast, KimiCast, and hear Daddy at www.kimi.com. That's K-E-E-M-E.com. Now that the business is out of the way, let's get to the real reason you're here. The story so far. As the third day of the Beta Clones adventure began, Dr. Mike returned to the common room where he helped John, Kilroy 2.0, and the other Beta Clones puzzle over the messages left by Alpha's minions. Father Thomas recognized a reference in one of these messages. This discovery led them to a location that Alpha apparently wanted them to visit, a Texas ghost town called Prophecy. Another message revealed the identity of Alpha's Neth Charge assassin, Doug Devlin. Dr. Mike recalled a personal connection to Devlin. Mike had interviewed the remorseless killer after he'd been captured in Turkey years ago. General Hill and Dr. Kleinman visited the common room to check on the clone's progress. Kleinman told Jonathan that the clone's mother, Dania Sheridan, wanted to speak to him in the facility's infirmary. Jack vehemently denounced Dania's ethics and actions, insisting that Jonathan not go. Jonathan chose to visit her anyway. As the chapter came to a close, tempers flared. John defended his brother's decision. Jack stubbornly refused to listen and insulted John, nearly sparking a fistfight. Chapter 8 In 1985, the Soviet Union, under the supervision of its military's Strategic Missile Forces leadership, deployed a unique communication system throughout the country. The system was called Perimeter RT. Called Dead Hand by the most cynical members of the SMF, the Perimeter RT system was designed to act as a last resort radio transmission system in the event of a catastrophic nuclear incident. The system was designed around the following in game scenario A surprise nuclear attack is launched against the Soviet Union. The attack destroys cities, annihilates millions. The leaders who would normally authorize a counterstrike the Chief of General Staff, the Minister of Defense, the Premier, or these days the democratically elected President, are dead or lost. They cannot be reached on their Kazbek briefcase computers. There is no one to issue the preliminary command, the crucial first action, in a series of at least a dozen, that will eventually send a retaliatory strike against the enemy. The perimeter RT communication system is comprised not of radio antennae or satellite dishes, but of rockets, modified RT-2PM missiles to be exact. Built into these rockets are ultra-high-frequency radio transmitters. In the event of a decapitation of Russian leadership, these rockets can still be launched by SMF underlings. For more than an hour, the perimeter RT rockets can fly over the silos, subs, and vehicles that have been cut off from the rest of the world. 
During their flight, the rockets continually transmit orders to launch a counterattack, as well as the invaluable authorization codes required to activate the nukes. Deploying a perimeter RT rocket requires a human order, given from an appropriate official located at SMF Central Command in Moscow or one of its reserve command centers. That official must have access to the appropriate terminal and must have authorization to use it. Them's the rules, comrade. In turn, a nuke in the field that receives launch orders from Perimeter RT can fly only if the codes in the transmission exactly match the preset authorization code in the nuclear missile's memory bank. If there's a discrepancy, the nuke won't launch. Furthermore, the weapon can only launch after the command has been approved by the soldiers assigned to supervise the nuke. Humans control the system in the beginning and in the end. The Perimeter RT system was designed for the absolute endgame. It was the world's biggest, in case of emergency, break glass solution. The one that bats cleanup. The one that ends the party. It wasn't difficult to plant the Trojan horse into the Perimeter RT's computer database. When times are tough, people will sell just about anything to keep food on their tables. $10 U.S. can go a long way in Russia. $10 million, well, that can buy a person's soul. Or about an hour at a data terminal. The $10 million, AU Rookman's money, of course, bought three things. The first was the compliance and silence of Ivan Denisov, a systems administrator at Moscow's SMF Central Command Center. The second a detailed copy of the Perimeter RT's aged database and protocols acquired by Denisov and given to John Alpha. The third was an order from Alpha. Copy one file from a CD-ROM provided by sidejacked Defense Minister Savine Alpha, created by Hacker Special K, into the Perimeter RT terminal's database. That was it. Ten million for fifty minutes' worth of work. Denisov fulfilled his end of the deal. He asked no questions and received his money. That had been four months, 16 days, five hours, 45 minutes, and six seconds ago. A Trojan horse is no more alive than any other software application, but it behaves as if it were. The Trojan horse is given a home just like any other computer program, often in a hard drive, and there it hides, usually in a rarely used directory. There, it sleeps. When the Trojan horse is activated, it does whatever it was programmed to do. Maybe it ransacks your email address book and sends copies of itself to your friends. Maybe it bombs your hard drive. Or maybe it snakes its little binary tendrils through dozens of directories, rewriting data, telling the computer to perform certain malevolent tasks. Tasks in the background, well under the hood. That's what the Trojan horse in the Perimeter RT database was doing right now. Set to activate at a specific time, it had emerged from its hibernation five minutes ago and begun hacking its way through the Perimeter RT system's 20-year-old code. 30 seconds from now, the Trojan horse is going to successfully reprogram the trajectory of a single Perimeter RT communications rocket. The new flight path will send the rocket over Russia's Saratov region. Ten seconds after that reprogramming, 
The Trojan horse will then enter a new message into the rocket's communication system to transmit a launch order and a custom-made series of new authorization launch codes. The perimeter RT rocket will then soar into the gray afternoon sky. This process will completely circumvent the Central Command Center's checks and balances system, which requires a human to order a perimeter RT rocket deployment. Not that anyone at the Central Command Center is going to notice the launch until well after it's airborne. You see, no one is minding the perimeter RT terminal in the Central Command Center right now. Why would they? It's merely a relic from the paranoia-soaked Cold War. The chunky, ultra-high-frequency radio in the Maz driver's cabin finally crackled to life. Doug Devlin extended his trembling hand and turned the volume dial. He gazed down at his arm. The depth-charged shakes were running rampant through his body now. His traumatized brain was shutting down, giving up. An uncontrollable laugh barked from his mouth. I'm going through withdrawal, he thought. Consciousness is the narcotic, and this body's got the DTs. He eyed his palsied hand, nothing more than a claw now, and then listened to the transmission coming from the radio. The noise surging through the speaker sounded like a whining buzzsaw overlaid with intermittent beeps and blips. This was it, the signal he'd been waiting for. With some difficulty, Devlin opened the door of the driver's cabin and stepped out into the snow-strewn forest floor. The Saratov's sharp wind frost snapped at his senses. Leaning against the side of the mass for support, he pressed his way to the rear of the launch vehicle. The launch canister had been erected to its vertical position, pressed upward and off the back of the mass, and onto the ground behind the vehicle. It made the mass appear as if it had backed into a massive metal telephone pole. The hydraulic presses built into the mass glimmered in the afternoon sunlight. The canister itself loomed like a skyscraper. Inside was one Topol-M missile with three multiple independently targetable re-entry vehicle, or MIRV, warheads. Three little nukes for the price of one. The three other Nepth-charged Russians were back there, waiting for him. They had spent the past 20 minutes prepping the canister's contents for launch. The nuke was ready to do what it was built to do. The men here were also in the advanced stages of the Nepth-induced devolution, but none was in as bad shape as this particular Devlin. The shakes, those he had grown accustomed to in the past day. But this, this meltdown, had happened so suddenly. Just in the past hour, really. If the body could mimic a mind going insane, this is what it would look like, Devlin had thought about 40 minutes ago. That's when he realized he had lost his sense of smell. Now the brain rot was even worse. Devlin's head nodded uncontrollably. One shoulder was cocked permanently upward, making him look like a shambling scarecrow. His entire right eye, including the iris, had gone bloodshot red. Vampiric streams of blood dribbled from his mouth. Afternoon of the living dead, Devlin thought as he eyed his nepth-charged other selves. Another rattling laugh surged from his throat. Devlin's brain tried to tell his body to stiffen, to stand at some breed of attention, to show some kind of dignity in the face of, well, of himself when you got right down to it. Somewhere far away, 
he felt his bladder let go instead. The end was nigh in more ways than one. T-t-t-t-time, he said to them. S-s-signal is here. Fra-fra-from perimeter. His blood-stained teeth glimmered as he smiled. The other Devlins smiled back. One of them, the one who was once a Russian named Boronov, shuffled to his gibbering comrade and clapped him on the shoulder. It's all going as scheduled, Boronov Devlin said. Snot dripped uncontrollably from the man's nose. One of his eyes rolled in its socket on its own, happily living the single life, seeing whomever it wanted to. The launch canister beside them suddenly began to hum, a growling sound that echoed throughout the forest clearing. The air around them trembled. A hissing sound shrieked from one of the three dozen valves on the exterior of the mass. We've approved the missile to auto-launch as soon as it receives the new authorization codes from the perimeter, another one of the Neth soldiers explained. The left side of this man's face sagged as if he had suffered a stroke. He probably had. Are you ready to head into the launch compartment? Devlin nodded, realizing the gesture must have had the subtlety of a sock puppet. He felt his head rock up and down, felt his chin slap against his chest. More blood dribbled from his mouth. He laughed again, spitting crimson onto the snowy ground. As the four ghouls shuffled toward the front of the launch vehicle and the insulated safety of the launch compartment behind the driver's cockpit, Devlin recalled how they had ensured these stolen nukes would launch. The Devlins had taken care of the critical Permissive Action Links, or PALs, more than a week ago. Permissive Action Links are placed in every nuclear weapon and arm a nuke only after receiving a specific launch code from the Central Command Center. So, the Devlins had hacked the PALs attached to the missiles at the Tatischevo garrison and had reprogrammed them with their own special launch codes and new target coordinates. Identical combination key codes were now being broadcast across the Saratov region, thanks to the hijacked Perimeter RT rocket soaring somewhere overhead. Beware Trojans bearing gifts, indeed. It was a simple case of lock and key, master and slave. Devlin nodded again, smiling at the plan's brilliance. And now it was being realized here, at this Maz launcher, and eight others just like it. He might not live to see the world's new face, but he would die knowing that he, all of him's, made it happen. And the best part? Devlin would live to fight another day. His recorded memory totality would see to that. The rumbling from the launch canister was nearly deafening now. The nuclear missile inside had received the launch order and authorization codes from the hacked Perimeter RT rocket and was priming itself for launch. The four Devlins slipped into the mass's insulated launch compartment. One of them grabbed the door handle with a quivering hand and pulled it closed. The 13-inch thick door sealed with a thud of finality. In under a minute, the Topol M missile would tear free of its cylindrical prison and would begin its trek southwest. It would take only 20 minutes for it to scream through the atmosphere, slip into outer space, and then plummet back toward Earth where it would strike its target. Seven other missiles would land nearby. One of the missiles had another target altogether. That one was the linchpin. Inside the safety of the cramped launch compartment, the Devlins began to laugh. Halfway across the globe, John Alpha was laughing too. 
Chapter 9 Jonathan stepped out of the elevator into the white hallways of Seven Sons Infirmary level. The ride had left him queasy and vaguely disoriented, but not as much as his first ride when he had upchucked his breakfast onto the floor. Talk about embarrassing. He took a moment to lean against the tiled wall and took in a deep breath. Jonathan hated this side of himself. He was this way with roller coasters, tilt-a-whirls, even Ferris wheels. Plane flights were problematic. It wasn't the heights that bothered Jonathan. It was the velocity, the turbulence, the realization that you didn't have a say in what was happening. Jonathan pulled a handkerchief from his jeans pocket and dabbed it across his forehead. He thought of meadows and waterfalls. Of course, not all of this is tied to the elevator ride, and you know it. Come clean, Jay, he thought. It's Dania, Mom, talking to her again. There's just too much to think about, too many questions, too many emotions. It's just too much. He took another deep breath, closed his eyes. What would Patricia say right now? She'd say to quit struggling, of course, to let it go. That's what she'd say. Take a chill pill, Jay. Just be. Just let go. She always was the more level-headed one of us. I'm the neurotic. She's the low-maintenance artiste. I gotta go with John to the northbound trip. I know that. I shouldn't fight that. But after that, I'm heading back to the East Village. Back to Peppermint. He felt the tension fall away from his shoulders, his neck. That's right. Be strong. Wing it. See where it takes you. Relax. Just relax, Jonathan repeated, placing the handkerchief back in his pocket. He stepped away from the wall and looked down the hallway, first right, then left. All told, there was at least a dozen doors to choose from. A small light was mounted above each doorway. The lights above, too, glowed dimly. He turned left and walked toward the doors. A sign by the first room read, Surgery. He peered through the door's thin vertical window and spotted a man sleeping in a hospital bed. One of his legs was wrapped in bandages. Nearby, a glass cabinet glimmered. It was filled with operating instruments, tweezers, scalpels, clamps, scissors. This was the guy they pulled off the helicopter, Jonathan thought. One of the soldiers who went to Los Angeles with Thomas and Dr. Mike. And Michael. He turned away and walked to the next room, labeled Recovery One. Two beds were inside, their headboards pressed against the wall to the left. The bed closest to the door was empty. In the other, a bandaged Dania Sheridan was sitting, typing at a portable computer in her lap. The computer was making cheerful chirping sounds. Jonathan knocked and opened the door. Dania looked up and smiled. It was a brilliant smile, a mother's smile, and at that moment, Jonathan knew he was going to be just fine. Well, Jonathan, she called, closing the laptop. He walked toward her, grinning. I'm glad you could make it. How are you? She frowned slightly. No, let me try that again. How are you? I'm good, he replied, nodding. A little nervous. He made it to the bed and stood over his mother. He reached out his hands. Dania smiled and placed her bandaged right hand in them. He glanced at the laptop. What were you working on? Oh, I was gone for a long time, Dania replied. She brushed away a lock of silver hair from her face. God, she looked almost like she did when he was a kid. It was the closest thing Jonathan had ever felt to a deja vu. I've been catching up, catching up on the lost time. I'm sorry you even have to do that. Don't be. 
Before Mike left, he told me you were all going to decode some strange messages. How's that going? It's going well, I guess. Mom, I just wish we'd found you sooner. Oh no, don't say that. It wasn't your fault. It was Alpha. He's the one that did this. He's the one that killed Michael. Jonathan looked away. I know. Dania Sheridan's voice grew cold. He's also the one who's going to kill you. His eyes turned slowly toward her. Ha! His mother screamed, her eyes wild. Her mouth was a freakish grin now, almost too big for her face. And then Jonathan's world slipped into slow motion, all happening in present tense, all happening now. Dania Sheridan's left hand reaching to her side. There was a gun there, but she didn't reach for the gun. No, she was reaching for the shining scalpel resting next to it. Her fingers curving around its silver hilt now, bringing it upward. The blur of her arm as she swung it towards his face. And Jonathan suddenly knew who she really was. The blade slid effortlessly across Jonathan's throat. He felt nothing for a moment. And then, pain. Dania Sheridan shrieked laughter as his blood spurted across her face. Jonathan's knees buckled and crashed against the floor. He clutched at the air. He tried to scream, but instead more blood streamed from his neck. His head made a sick cracking sound as it connected with the floor. Jonathan thought vaguely of splitting twigs over his knee as a child. Not a child, he thought. Never a child. No father. No mother. Dear God. No. No. He could see Dania Sheridan's legs swinging over the bed, her bare feet splashing into the growing pool of blood next to him, beneath him. He tried to press himself upward. Run. Go. Run. Run like the gingerbread man. But his hand slipped in the blood and he fell downward again, his chin splitting open as it smashed into the tiles. From this vantage point, Jonathan could see beneath his mother's hospital bed, Sandwiched between the bed and the wall was Corporal Stone's body. Small darts pockmarked his chest, darts from his pistol. They looked like silver exclamation points. The room was spinning now, the floor bending at strange angles, breathing, rising and falling. He felt a hand grasp his shoulder and tug it, rolling him over. The blood-spattered face of Dania Sheridan stared down at him through a hazy corona of stars. <coughs> Jonathan said. Eloquent the woman said. She slipped the Trank pistol and several magazines in the waist strap of her pajama pants. She then hefted the laptop off the bed with her good hand. I'd love to see if you have anything else to say, but I'm on a very tight schedule. I just reactivated Dania's privileges in the security system and must be going before anyone notices. Capiche? Sigh, <coughs> Jonathan gurbled. The room was growing dark now. Very dark indeed. Dania cocked her head to one side. Sigh? Sigh? She asked, and then grinned. Oh, sigh. Sigh-jack. Of course she's been sigh-jack, Jonathan. I'm running the show now. I'm back at Seventh Sun, and it's a real humdinger of a homecoming. Let me tell you, the memories it brings back. Oh, the memories. Jonathan grabbed at her ankle. She kicked it away. She trotted to the door, leaving a trail of bloody footprints behind her. Before she left, Dania Sheridan looked back at Jonathan one last time. Her eyes glittered in triumph. Jonathan tried to roll over on his belly. He couldn't even raise his shoulder. Dark. Very dark now. Scream, he thought. Scream for help. Scream. Scream. He opened his mouth. Nothing. 
Jonathan Smith closed his mouth. He opened his eyes. He thought of his wife. Beautiful Patricia. Beautiful Peppermint. Just be, Jay. Just let it go. Let go. Let go. Tears sliding from his eyes. He did. And that's how I know it's the bad hombre, Dr. Mike said. He had just finished updating General Hill and Dr. Kleiman on the deciphering of the riddles and the connection to rogue CIA agent Doug Devlin. Jack, John, and Father Thomas sat on the circular couch, listening. Kilroy 2.0 hadn't moved from his spot at the computer workstation. So the southbound team is heading to Prophecy, Texas, General Hill said, while the northbound team's trip must be connected to Devlin somehow. Find who slurred the mother. That's right, Mike replied. How the two are connected, we don't know yet. We haven't looked at the rest of the clues. Do you think it's wise to split up? Kleiman asked. Behind him, Kilroy rolled his eyes and laughed. Of course not, Mike said. But you have to consider something. John Alpha has shown himself to be a meticulous planner. The theft of the DNAX, the execution of Doug Devlin on death row, the riddles on the dam wall. They're all built on each other, built to this point, built for us. There's a lot we still don't know. Like why 80 other people across the country were nepth charged, Jack said. Mike nodded. Exactly. But if we're to assume Alpha's precise timetable is still in effect, and that this is all built for our benefit, then we'll have to split up just as he wants. It's another test. The real question is why, General Hill said. And why now? John leaned forward on the couch and mashed his cigarette on the glass ashtray on the table. Because the destinations themselves are probably time-sensitive, he said. I'm not talking Brigadoon here, but I'm willing to bet that if we don't get to these places when John Alpha wants us to, we may never be able to stop him. But John Alpha's dead, Kleinman said. They said Punk was dead, John replied. General Hill grunted. Huh, so you split up. Where did the northbound betas go? Father Thomas nodded. We should look at the next clue on the list. Kilroy? Kilroy 2.0 glanced at the monitors. It says, go to the speaker's home, then find her. Suddenly, an ear-piercing klaxon rang throughout the common room, surging from the in-wall speakers, an electronic re-ee, 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 that forced Kilroy, Jack, and Father Thomas to cover their ears. Parts of the common room's circular wall began to flicker crimson, Red lights were embedded behind the white plastic wall panels. General Hill turned toward the speaker planted high up on the wall. Operations, this is Hill. Report. Ah, sir, we appear to have a situation here, a trembling voice replied. Sir, it... it's Russia, sir. They've launched nukes. Nine of them. NORAD satellite just picked them up, sir. ComNet confirmed. One was fired well before the rest. It's, uh, it's heading into the upper atmosphere right now. (laughs) Duck and cover, Kilroy said. General Hill fired the hacker a withering glare before glancing back at the speaker. Does NORAD have trajectory? Destination? Uh, SDI satellite and geosync above the launch region is calculated that, sir. Trajectory of the first missile is unknown. Okay, forget the trajectory. What about missile defense countermeasures? Can the SDI sat take it out? Tell me it's bringing nuke busters online, son. Tell me. Yeah, yes, sir. The speaker replied. Comnet says satellites arming them right. Holy shit! In the common room, Kleinman shrieked. What is it, ops? 
What is it? Corporal Wayne, report. What happened? Shit, sir. We just lost the goddamn satellite. We've lost everything over Russia, sir. Everything. Spy sats, commsats. We got no eyes. Lost the feed on all of them. What? Hill screamed. Completely blind, sir. No confirmed kill on the missile. At the computer workstation, Kilroy 2.0 began nodding his head. EMP, he said knowingly, closing his eyes. Brilliant. Goddamn, Hill muttered. Ops, you still there? Ops. <laughs> sir, Corporal Wayne's voice replied. The man was hyperventilating. Listen carefully. Stay calm, the general said. The rest of the nukes will pass through the atmosphere before heading back down to their targets. They'll leave Russian airspace, which means they'll be spotted by other NORAD satellites beyond the ones we just lost. Okay, Wayne said. Keep your eyes on ComNet, son. Tell me when NORAD gets a lock on those other nukes. It shouldn't be long. In the meantime, prep us for lockdown. Yes, sir. Hill whirled around to face Kleiman and the clones. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Listen to me. We've got less than 20 minutes before those other nukes find their targets. Give me opinions. Is this Alpha's work? <laughs> Bet the farm, Kilroy said. No fucking way, John said. This is coincidence, right? No one can hijack uh, a nuke. Kilroy waved a hand at the wall's flashing lights. How else do you explain this? Dr. Mike waved his good arm over his head like an impatient schoolchild. Excuse me, but am I the only one here who didn't take his idiot pills this morning? We're actually going to sit here and talk? Quiet, Hill snapped. Even with the loss of our satellites over Russia, NORAD will spot the missiles and deduce their general trajectories, based on comnet drills that'll happen in about three minutes from now. That gives us about ten minutes to evac to the lower levels if necessary. That's more than enough time. Keep those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand, Father Thomas whispered. He held his rosary in white-knuckled hands. I don't understand, John said, glancing from the priest to Hill. How did we lose contact with the, what, the IDS satellite? SDI, Jack said. Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, John, nuke-killing satellites. And land-based rockets, General Hill added. Those are real? This is fucking ridiculous, Dr. Mike screamed. We should be running right now, not yammering. Hill, we should be underground. You should be in ops where you have control. Hill turned to Dr. Mike. And how could I possibly have control over this situation? You want me to use code phantom clearance to override NORAD, the experts? You want me to grab a joystick and shoot down the incoming missiles myself? This isn't a video game, asshole. This is real life. All the more reason to run, Mike insisted. SDI satellites were real, Kilroy said to John, ignoring the others. Until now. Until the EMP. I, what, I don't... I know, I know, the hacker said. John, how do you squeeze a nuke past a nuke killer? You neutralize it, blind it. I bet a million bucks the first nuke was programmed to detonate in outer space, on purpose. <laughs> the blast's electromagnetic pulse would be enough to fry the satellite CPU, circuitry, communication systems. The rest of the nukes can fly by now, undetected. It's brilliant in its own way. Jack shook his head. No, no, the man in ops said satellites. How can an EMP disable all of them? The missile must have been a Merv, Kilroy explained. Several warheads, each with its own target coordinates. It's like buckshot. How do you know all this? Father Thomas asked. The hacker raised his eyebrows. Kilroy 2.0 is everywhere, he replied. The speaker on the wall crackled to life. General Hill, it's Ops. 
the voice said. I'm here, Hill replied. Exact trajectories of the missiles still haven't been calculated by NORAD, but they're definitely not heading our way, Corporal Wayne said. His voice was steadier now. Ten minutes till impact. They're heading southwest from Russia, maybe Africa, nowhere near us. Dr. Mike exhaled. Thank God, he said. Then where are they heading? General Hill asked, turning to the clones. His eyes were searching for answers. And why? Comnet's triangulating the vectors right now, Wayne said. Long-range radar. His voice trailed off. It came back as a shriek. Ops? Hill asked. Wayne's voice was now even more panicked than before. It's Corporal Stone, sir. Rubenstein went to relieve him in the infirmary. He's dead. Stone is dead. So's Lockwood. And one of the betas. Jonathan? Father Thomas said. And Dania Sheridan? Hill asked. Where's Dania Sheridan? Not on the infirmary level, Corporal Wayne's voice cried. Hill's eyes suddenly widened. He whirled around to the common room doorway, knocking down Mike in the process. The clone howled in pain. Alert status one, Hill bellowed, his voice angled up toward the speaker on the wall. Repeat, alert status one. Another klaxon began to sound from the speakers. The room was suddenly growing darker. Above them, a thick slab of metal slowly slid across the outside of the skylight. Another blast door. The blue sky vanished as the reinforced slab locked home. What's going on? Jack asked. Lock down the corridors, Hill screamed as he dashed toward the common room doors. Lock us down! John's eyes darted from Hill to Kleinman. What in the hell is this? John cried over the klaxon. Kleinman, too, was now running toward the doors. What's happened? It's Dania Sheridan, Kleinman yelled back. Don't you see? He's inside her head. She's been sidejacked. John Alpha is here. John Alpha is here! John ran after the old man. Jack followed. The doors of the common room slammed shut behind them. You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit, a podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net for more information about this novel and about the author. Themed music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast generously created by Magic Torch. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C. Hutchins.